It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Within five years, open source AI will have raised the GDP in the world's poorest countries. That is the premise for today's conversation. I'm Azim Azar. Welcome to the Exponentially podcast. Recent reports from the banks and consultancies have suggested that new breakthroughs in AI, particularly generative AI, could add trillions of dollars to global GDP. But the most advanced of these models are built in the West on expensive supercomputers and trained using English language datasets. So how can the global South, with their young populations, tighter finances and shakier infrastructure, share in this productivity boom? Today's guest is Emad Mustak, a Jordanian-born Bangladeshi immigrant to Britain who's the founder and CEO of Stability AI. It's a firm that has accelerated to a billion-dollar valuation in less than three years. Emad has been vocal about the potential that open-source AI offers to the poorest in the world. But there have been serious criticisms levelled against him, most prominently in a recent story by Forbes magazine. These include questions about taking credit for the company's technology, about some of the partnerships the firm is meant to have, and also governance practices at Stability AI, where Mustark remains CEO. Emad has publicly rejected these as gross mischaracterizations, and a debate over the story and others critical of Stability AI continues to play out on social media and elsewhere. But as long as investors who have poured hundreds of millions of dollars into Stability AI continue to stick by Ahmad, and as long as a firm continues to innovate and bring out new AI models, he will remain a powerful force in the expanding AI universe. What is generative AI and how is it different from all of the AI systems that we saw previously? Generative AI is a new type of AI that started in 2017. There was a seminal paper called Attention is All You Need, because not all data is the same. You pay attention to what's important. So classical AI was built on this concept of big data. So you had all this data of Facebook and Google, and they used it to sell you coconut shampoo, but it couldn't go outside its boundaries. So it was like a very logical, the future is like the past, stable kind of environment. Mm -hmm. This new type of AI said, pay attention to the important parts of data to compress it. So as people listening to this will see, they might take away a few points. They're not going to remember our entire conversation. Mm -hmm. That's what human mind does. You've got right. the very logical part that can memorize stuff. And you've got the part that builds principles, stories, frameworks for understanding. And, and this paper attention is all you need, in a sense, analogize that for a computer system. Exactly. It, yeah. it was the first one that said, this is how you show it at scale. And let's simplify it down to a problem of better data and bigger computers. So using gigantic supercomputers, you can take these big data sets of text, images, and others, and compress it down to just a few gigabytes of file. 
that learns principles, not facts. And so this was the missing piece in AI. And that's why using these systems feels actually quite surprisingly human. Surprisingly human. But how do we get to the generative part of all of that? The generative part is that you put a prompt in or some words in, and then it gives you something back. It generates the outputs. And the outputs are not always even the same because it has principles as a base. So in, in the same sense that if you and I meet one day, the way the conversation plays out could be quite different to the next time we, we meet because we have principles of, of socialization and of behavior and, and of how well we know each other. And those get applied in real time at that moment each time we shake hands. In real time. It's, it's a file with just a bunch of like it's called neural nets, weights, words go in and they get shaken out like a pinball slot machine. And then the output comes, but the out input can be a painting of a cup in the style of Vermeer. And then it understands the nature of painting, cup, Vermeer, but cup has so many different meanings. It can mean this cup or cup your hands or cup your ears or a world cup. Mm -hmm. And it understands those things in place because it's been trained on images and text. Similarly, a lot of these language models, they've been trained on sentences. So they look at the context of the sentence and they say, what's coming next? You know, like, uh, that game of improvisation yeah. where you start with the sentence and then you provide something. I and provide then I the next one and, uh, back and, and on forth. we go. On we go. And it's moving so, so quickly. So last summer I was away in Tanzania on a, on a safari and there's really no mobile signal. Mm. We were away for about two and a half weeks. And when I came back, the internet was full of stable diffusion, stable diffusion, stable diffusion, mm. stable diffusion. And that is one of your, your generative products. What it does, it takes text and it produces images. So I can say, I want an image of a badger playing football on a bicycle and stable diffusion will, will produce that image. It could also produce more useful, commercially interesting images. Recently, you've brought out a new generative product, which is stable LM, which looks a lot like the, these text models that we've seen running around today. Stable LM is our language model suites. And what we do is a bit different from a lot of the other companies in that a lot of the focus on the breakthroughs were because a lot of these research labs, the open AIs, Anthropics of the world, deep minds had this focus on AGI, artificial general intelligence. Mm -hmm. Can you build an AI that can do anything? Yes. And it turns out maybe you can. So GPT making a machine that's in our own image in a sense, that's what AGI but more like. than that, it's a general intelligence. So it's the kid that made you look bad at school because he was good at everything. You know, the top performer. Right. Like uh, GPT-4 now can pass the bar exam, the medical licensing exam, the GRE. It's probably going to Stanford, you know, right. next Absolutely. school. But then our take was, that's great. You can have these amazing giant general models. What will be better is to mimic humanity where our companies are not one generalist doing everything. What if we made it so you could bring your own data to the models and have lots of specialists working together and have those models working for you that you own? Right. What if you had open data, open models and allowed it to be customized and specialized? So rather than relying on one model to do everything, instead you optimize them. Right. So, but the idea is still the same. The idea is, is still constructing a, a model that is generative. I can give it some text and it can produce something that is commercially useful or emotionally useful. So working software code or a working 
invitation to a meeting or, you know, things that will save us time and help us perhaps be a bit more creative. So again, like a talented graduate, and they can learn very quickly from a few examples. So they have this base of generalized knowledge. They've been to kindergarten, and high school and university, but they're not specialized yet. But mm-hmm. uh, you can train them yourself or you can just show them some examples and they learn very quickly. Unlike classical AI models that you had to train on the whole data set, they weren't good at adaptation. Like sure. the badger riding a bike, that's not really a normal thing, you know? And so that was being the province of, well, just us. Right. We were able to take these concepts together, whereas a computer could never merge together concepts. Now sure. we've got that missing link of being able to take concepts, merge them together, understand some of these hidden meanings. I'm curious about what you think the economic impact uh, of all of this will be. I mean, there have been any number of papers coming out from the the investment banks and the research houses and economists in the last few months. I think uh, Goldman Sachs had a report that suggested that, that with one of their scenarios, they could see fast implementation of generative AI across the world, leading to a 7% increase mm-hmm. in global GDP in about 10 years. What's your sense of what it could do economically? I think it's the biggest thing since the Gutenberg press, maybe even fire. The Gutenberg press 600 years ago or fire 2 million years ago. I think that humans are driven by stories. It's what allowed us to form tribes and then money and things like that are stories. The right. press allowed us to write down the stories, but it's very lossy. Again, you, me, everyone listening, like you're looking through your things right now. We do PowerPoints, we write things, but it doesn't capture the richness of humanity. Our organizations are built on layers of text, which is painful. Mm-hmm. And that's why it turns us into cogs in the machine, shall we say. I mean, there's something that's quite powerful about the models. I think that you are getting to here, which is that you can feed them text and through that the machination of the, the billions of different uh, switches and, and, and cogs, you, you guys call them parameters, yes. in the system, it starts to find those underlying relationships that we know probably deeply in our brains, but don't express what we do is we express words one word at a time. And they look at all these words and they're able to find some representations of reality that, that actually humans use but can't touch and describe. I think there's that part of it. And the other part of it is just being able, again, AI is about information classification. When you're writing, the hardest thing is to write something terse and compress. It's a bit easier to write big, but it's still difficult. The easiest thing for us to do is talk. Now there's the old adage, you know, I I couldn't send you a, a short letter, so I've sent you a long one, right? Now anyone anywhere can create any image, soon any PowerPoint slide almost instantly that looks beautiful. So the fact that it understands concepts is a big deal because the barriers to information flow are reduced. So information can flow better around our organizations, our systems. As you eliminate barriers to information flow, you're taking friction out of systems. You're taking friction out of daily life. You're taking friction out of business processes. You're taking friction out of the economy. And so we would hope to see improvements in productivity and with that improvements in prosperity. All of finance can be broken down into two things, securitization and leverage. Securitization is a representation of a asset of some sort. It's money, the trust of the American government. It is a bond. It is a property deed, something like that. But you can only have so much information on that. You and I, we have our credit scores based on the information of who we are, what we do, 
our functional identities. Mm -hmm. Most of the world is invisible. The global south, this is people who are underbanked, people who perhaps don't have formal IDs and so on. You need identity and you need information to allow for banking. Mm. You need that for finance and our financial systems are quite slow. As you get increases in information flow, you get increases in prosperity because you can direct assets to where they're needed. You can direct resources to where they're needed. It's like I always tell people in the team, roadmaps are never resource constrained, they're story constrained. Because if it's a good idea, as a leader, I hope I will find you the resources, but you have to convince me first. I can imagine these models in rich, advanced economies where there's a huge service sector, there are lots of people who sit behind computers, typing away, creating spreadsheets and PowerPoint slides. I can imagine these models helping economies like, like that. But how can we see them helping the, the global south or poorer, less advanced economies? One of the reasons these models have got everywhere is they become good enough, fast enough, and cheap enough. Stuff that used to cost dollars, tens of dollars, hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars, you can now do with a few simple prompts. Mm -hmm. Now, I think it will remove a lot of the basic tasks and make people more productive as opposed to leading to mass-scale unemployment. And we're not seeing demand for coders drop off, right? Coders can still get work pretty quickly as they need it. Because you will write better code. And again, yeah. a productivity increase. Smartphones can take amazing pictures, but there are more employed photographers in the world now than ever. You know, again, we adapt, we improve, we use the technology. However, the global south is a very interesting phenomenon. We had mobile phones. You remember it used to be for the rich only, these big, big things. Yeah, yeah. And, and now in the global south, there are mobile phones everywhere. They're... They leapt over the PC to mobile. Yeah. They leapt over to instant payments. Whereas we took a while to catch up. In certain of Western countries, you still haven't caught up to instant payments. I think what will happen is these models will become good enough, fast enough, and cheap enough just within the next few years that they will leap forward to intelligence augmentation. To the benefit of these emerging markets. Yes. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. So let's think about where we've got to. We've got this very powerful technology that we've characterized. It's extremely helpful in many, many different ways. But it is the case that these systems are extremely expensive to build, to train, as it's called. They require lots and lots of data. The, the British government has allocated more than a billion dollars 
to build a, a supercomputer just to train these models. The rumors are that the, the GPT-4 model from OpenAI cost hundreds of millions of dollars to train, but they're also trained on pretty much everything that you can find on the internet, a large part of which will be Western American English language, a strong cultural bias. So it sounds like that not only can poorer countries not afford this, but even if they could, the technologies wouldn't necessarily be, be suitable for the economic requirements or the cultural requirements of Tanzania or, or Bangladesh. Yeah, I think this is a real problem. I think the quality of data we're feeding to these incredible models is mm -hmm. poor. It is scraped from the whole internet. We need better data. We need that as infrastructure. There is a monetary equation of we need giant supercomputers, but more as a question of talent and expertise. It's complicated to build these things. This is one of the reasons, again, kind of we had stability to do an open version and build these data sets for each country on an open basis. So what do you actually mean by, by an open model and how does that solve the computational problem? We got the giant supercomputers and then we got... Oh, we is stability. Stability, right. yes. And then we made it available and then we released it open source so people could take these models as a base and then extend them. I'm familiar with open source in, in software, you, it, it's whereas with closed source, if you're getting a you know, Microsoft Word, you, you buy it from Microsoft and you can't inspect the source code, the instructions yes. to make it run, you just run it. So you are fundamentally a consumer of it. But with an open source project like Libra Office, which is an open source office product, you just download the code, you can look at the code, you can inspect the code, you can modify the code and you can tailor it to your own requirements. So that's open source in software. What's open source in, in a model? So in a model, you can inspect the code, you can inspect the data sets, and the model weights themselves are freely available as a fresh trained graduate, as it were. And by releasing this openly, so you could take it and adapt it, it stoked a massive development boom where you started seeing it everywhere. Help me understand the, the mechanics of all this, because I, th I think it's important. Stability has its own machine learning AI supercomputer. Yes. So you run up the costs of training these models for the first time. Yeah. You then release them as models, data, and weights, which any developer can take and use. And when the developer runs them, they run them on their own computing hardware, and then then they're paying for that Yes, in some sense. They don't pay for it. But if you want enterprise support, then you work with us and our partners or if you want customized versions, because it's our view that your enterprise will want their own versions with their own data sets underlying it. Every country will want their own version because this is the next generation of infrastructure. The actual comparison is 5G. This is 5G, the phone technology. networks, right? Yes. Yeah. This is 5G for creativity, as it were. It's 5G for information flow. And a trillion dollars has been spent on 5G. Right. So we we can spend a lot more on on AI systems across our our economies. Yeah. If we come back to your open source models, it strikes me that that one of the things that you can do with them is you could make them very culturally relevant. Mm. And I think back to this idea that that sort of Western values get exported for every country, regardless. Mm. You know, back in in the day when you register for Facebook, it would ask you what your marital status was. And it was sort of single, divorced, married, or it's complicated. Yes. And, and my mum, who was in her late seventies at the time is registering for, for Facebook and is on the phone to me going, what does it's complicated yeah. mean? Cause it just didn't exist within her sort of men mental space. 
And it seems like given how important AI is going to be as infrastructure, I mean, it is going to be the layer between me and the services that I access as a consumer, as a citizen, or as an employee. It's a really critical gatekeeper. So is that part of your vision? An Indian version of ChatGPT, a Brazilian version of ChatGPT, an Indonesian version of ChatGPT? Yes, my vision is that every person, company, country, culture has their own models that they themselves build and have the data sets for, because this is vital infrastructure to represent themselves, to extend their abilities. How much of what you're saying is theory? I mean, do you actually have national models being built across the, the global south? A lot of this stuff is still in the research phase and now is only just entering the engineering phase. And so there's a lot we still don't know about these models, but they're good enough, fast enough, and cheap enough to do it. Okay. Even if the models are cheaper, you still have to get the relevant data because, yes. you know, the internet doesn't necessarily have lots of information about Pakistani culture and Pakistani broadcasts and Pakistani media. Exactly. And so what you need to have is you need to have Pakistani newspapers, Pakistani broadcast, and then have Pakistanis come together to build better data sets that teach these models. We know the technology now, but we lack the data. And so that is the key blocking point. To be able to get, get access to the data as is needed. Uh, no, to enable it so that as these data sets are built, the models can then come from there and then people can build on those models for their own people. It almost sounds philanthropic, right? So what is your model for, for making money from these open source models that you are effectively giving away after all your hard work? The whole of the infrastructure here in London, in the West is all based on open source. And the model for open source is that you have an open version that anyone can use, they can start experimenting with. And then there are variant enterprise versions that you provide full support around other services and facilities integration, and you make your money that way. With these models, we have our open models based on open data, and we have open models based on licensed data from our partners. Because when you talk to regulated industries and others, they want models they own. They don't want to send their data away to other people, and they want to know every single piece of data in there, and they want right. it to be the best data. You know, essentially, your average young developer or a small startup can download, download your models and use them. But if there's an issue, there's not a lot of support. But if you're a big company, you're a national government, you might enter into a, a more detailed contract where there is support and advice and, and potentially even data yes. uh, coming through. We know that AI is a very powerful technology and stability has taken a different path to other firms by going through an open source approach, which could democratize the technology, making it culturally, linguistically, locally relevant for any nation, any business, any region, any individual. But you're up against firms like Microsoft and OpenAI and Google and DeepMind and others. How do you plan to compete? I think there's a category error on addressable market. Our addressable market is all the private data in the world. Data you can't send to anyone, be it your personal data or enterprise data, financial regulated data. And so our models will go in and transform that into knowledge. And we'll have a hybrid AI thing. We've got our models and your private data, and we standardize all of that, make it very predictable, loads of support. And then you use these proprietary systems for the best outcomes. You'll have your own graduates that you hire, and you'll hire from McKinsey. And, and you'll put them together. You'll put them together. Uh, but I'm curious because other companies are taking a closed source approach to 
proprietary data. So there are companies like Cohere and Anthropic who will build a powerful generative AI model just on a company's own private data. They're competing with you as well, right? And so why is your approach better than that? They will not give that company ownership of that model. They will not share the detail of every single piece of data that's in that model. But that's the case today with lots of the technology that we use. You know, when I'm running my e-commerce application on the cloud, I don't know the details of every configuration of the servers that I'm, I'm renting from Amazon or Microsoft Azure. So businesses are used to that. 100%. And you have data that you can share with people, but there is a core of regulated data and other things, HIPAA compliant data, medical data that you cannot send to other companies and you have to build your own systems for inside regulated environments. The feedback we've got from regulated entities and again from policymakers and others is open, transparent models, even if it's licensed data, are something that we would like a lot. And we would like to own this technology if it's going to be vital infrastructure. Right. We're in London now. There's a deep bench of AI skills. How do we expand this and democratize it out to countries where there's just less talent? in these breakthrough areas? I think there's talent that just hasn't been accessed. And these models are very interesting. And you can use AI to help you develop applications of the AI, uh, which is quite a funny kind of recursion there. Right. So you effectively will start to support places where perhaps the workforce doesn't have the depth of San Francisco's AI talent with the tools themselves. Yes, because the AI models are pre-computed. The actual running of the AI is very computationally non-intensive. The creation of the AI is ridiculously intensive. Right. So you okay. put all the energy at the start rather than the end. So that takes us back to what stability will do. Stability will take the cost up front and then it'll find rich companies, rich nations, rich clients to tailor the models, which allows you to continue to make the base foundation model, which can then be given as open source to anyone else who yeah it stimulates demand it. and then as people go up and they need the support they come to us and our the partners as they need customization they come to us and our partners right and it's for private data open models and then other models are for data that you either are semi-private or you don't mind and you combine the two so you have models of both types there are of course concerns with the safety of ai systems and one argument is that with closed models that are controlled there's a lot more safety because if I'm accessing it over the web, the organization that's running the AI system can, can stop me if I'm trying to do something bad with it. And with open source models, of course, they're just available for anyone to download. So the cat is literally out of the bag many, many times over, millions of times over. Is your approach less safe than the closed approach? I think it's more safe. There's a reason that our infrastructure is based on open source databases and servers and others, because it can be checked, it can be tested, and it can be fully audited and battle tested. Our approach to stability is to create the standard around this. So there aren't thousands of different models. There is an entity and a partnership and an ecosystem that standardizes around this principles, guidelines, safety, watermarking, and other things. So it becomes predictable. But you've put the models out for any bad actor, any hacker, any annoyed employee to, to build something difficult with. We weren't the ones that came up with open models. We're standardizing it. We're supporting open innovation for detection and prevention, as well as creation. 
But but it does sound like bad actors will end up having a, a little bit of a field day, which creates, I, th- I suspect, an enormous opportunity for an AI-driven security and resilience industry. The reality is that we're stronger together when things are open, and open is required for all the private, regulated, and other data out there. Mm. If you don't have open systems, then you will only have proprietary entities, and they become the choke points on the internet. And that's far more dangerous than the other side. Open is there anyway, but like I said, let's standardize it, let's make it safer, and let's work together to combat the bad, as opposed to leaving it with a few unelected giant companies. Part of the story of technology is that technology has been exported from one place, really, for everyone else to use. I think one exciting opportunity now is, is the idea that, that the people on whom this technology is going to operate could potentially build their own. Now, many of those people are going to be in the global south. And the premise of our conversation is that within five years, safe and open source generative AI could make a meaningful contribution to increase the GDP of those world's poorest nations. How likely is it that this vision could become reality? I think it's incredibly likely. The desire, talent, and passion to adopt technology like this is huge within the global south. And It's where it can have the most impact, the highest ROI. So I think they'll take the building blocks that we and others provide, and they'll build some amazing things to activate their potential. Uh, Imad, it's a great vision. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Reflecting on my conversation with Imad, I'm reminded that much of the software that powers the internet today, used by billions of us, is actually open source. It's proven to be resilient, stable, and importantly, affordable. The open approach is one reason why the internet is, today, ubiquitous. So why wouldn't that be true for generative AI? And if the technology can live up to its promise of improving productivity, wouldn't the open approach make it more widely accessible to the poorest countries in the world? That seems to make sense to me. Thanks for listening to the Exponentially podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review or rating. It really does help others find us. The Exponentially podcast is presented by me, Azim Azar. The sound designer is Will Horrocks. The research was led by Chloe Ipper and music composed by Emily Green and John Zarconi. The show is produced by Frederick Casella, Maria Gavrilov and me, Azim Azar. Special thanks to Sage Bauman, Jeff Grocott and Magnus Henriksen. The executive producers are Andrew Barden, Adam Kamiski, and Kyle Kramer. David Ravella is the managing editor. Exponentially was created by Frederick Casella and is an E to the Pi I plus one limited production in association with Bloomberg LLC. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.